Hello, Mage fans. This is Adam Simpson for Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson and, well, hold, wait, wait, hold, um, is this really Terry? Uh, say something only Terry would say. Art spheres are awesome. Uh, it sounds like Terry. Okay, I, I guess I'm going to trust you for now. And for those of you listening, you've probably guessed we're talking about the New World Order Convention book that came out in 1995. This had an, a number 11 on the spine. It was uh, getting towards the very end of the first edition run, uh, written by just one author, Brian Campbell. Are you as excited as I am that we're now in the year 1995? Like, you and I have gone through a whole year together, except for the Book of Chantries and the core rulebook for first edition. We did. We got through 1994 and all the mage books that were offered to us, and we are standing on the edge almost of uh, second edition. Now, looking back at the, the history, or you could say the development of the game Mage the Ascension, this book stands out in that it was the first technocracy convention book that, in several places, considers technocracy player characters. Uh, the first two books, which were Progenitor and Iteration X, were really written from the point of view, this is a villain source book, you're going to pull these guys out to oppose your players and then move on. Uh, th but this time it's, it says, hey, yeah, you can use these New World Order agents as villains, but you can have your players be New World Order agents. You and it has a lot of stuff on how the sausage is made, on like how the convention actually operates in a way that I think if you were to just pick up a core rule book and read the other material may not be obvious. Like I think about the progenitors and I think about iteration X and it's kind of obvious to me when I read the convention book, how the way the group operates and the way the group are presented kind of flows from one to the other. But to me, the new world order is the first group and this will happen again with the syndicate where you're like, Oh, this is how I thought they operated. This is how they actually operate oh, this is interesting. And I super like that they filled in that gap for me in a way that I don't think as a storyteller I would have been able to do. But then again, I'm a bad storyteller. So The New World Order is a group where I, <laughs> in rare to form for me, uh, stand in solidarity with most uh, mage fans and most published mage material. Uh, most people see the New World Order as a, a villainous group, as a sort of sinister group. And uh, I, I have to agree with everybody. New World Order works very well in role. Uh, when I read material on them and think about the, the core concept behind them in the early days, it seems to flow from that. One of those rare instances where I'm not going against the stream. <laughs> I found it interesting that this is a group that, I mean, I originally read this convention book in something like 1998. And rereading it, I have a much more favorable view of them now than I did then. I very much get the feeling that the New World Order treats the Ascension War as an actual war. They believe that the propaganda function they are fulfilling is very much as a government would do so during wartime to bolster the morale of their troops, to disseminate disinformation for their enemies, and to disseminate information about their enemies. And once I kind of read it through that lens, a lot of things fell into place. That they understood their powers of media manipulation and to ability to subtly change the consensus. And since it was wartime, this is how they needed to use their powers. And I'm not saying that they didn't do it with a certain amount of glee, but to me, the fact that they're a little more gloves off than I think most people would like them to be totally made sense when it became obvious that they very much view this as an active war, an active conflict. 
yeah, th this book was well written. It was well thought through, and it's a very solid entry. And yeah, the the point you bring up was something I also noticed reading through it. The author was was really carefully thinking through how would this group uh, operate, and what materials can I draw on in writing it. Of course, the New World Order is one of the two technocracy conventions that is more concerned with uh, what some people might call the, the, the soft sciences or perhaps the social sciences. Uh, you have the other three groups, uh, progenitors, iteration X, and void engineers, who are more into hard sciences, biology, astrophysics, engineering, electrical engineering, and um, you know, cybernetics, etc. But uh, you've got the syndicate, who are more into economics and, and you might say uh, business, and maybe overlapping a bit with sociology. You've got the New World Order, which is more about political science, sociology, uh, history. And so it, it makes sense that we would we would see more of a divide between them and, and some of the hard science groups, but well put together. And speaking of well put together, uh, Terry, I would like to hear you walk us through the different sections that make up this book. I was about to say, oh, so you did notice that I've been exercising more when you said well put together. But the <laughs> this book gets off to a fast start. Our previous two convention books have about four pages of kind of in-world fiction just describing the goings-on of the character. Here, the basic conversation we have is a construct that is a person who has in some way been built. In this case, a progenitor, something along the lines of a progenitor victor, so some vat-grown entity by the name of Gene has been injured during a raid of some sort, was attacked by a ratkin, which is a type of changing breed, which is a were-rat, to the surprise of no one, name-wise. And he is talking to Roland Casalt, or Casot, of this uh, amalgam that is operating out of San Francisco. He's going back and forth, explaining what's happening, and in the process, he's like, hey, I've got some time to kill. How about you update me on where our convention came from? So on page... Two, we start getting information on how the group operates. Again, it starts real fast. So it goes through recruitment and the fact that they are a group that largely finds their applicants, as in they have their fingers in the pies of mass media, broadcast work, as well as universities, and they tend to actively recruit their students. They go through the different methodologies, the Ivory Tower, which works in educational work, the Watchers, which largely do data collection, and then finally the operatives, which we know as the, the men in black, the, uh, the men in gray, and the men in white, haven't updated the names to not have a focus on the word men in there, and they have this little aside that's like, well, the gray men are actually 50-50, and you're like, eh, maybe we can work on naming there. But anyway, and what each of those groups do. Then it goes through an absolutely fascinating section on history where there is a back and forth between a kind of a conspiracy-minded researcher and one who believes that the convention didn't really exist before Queen Victoria. You have this argument between Donald Richardson, who focuses on the history of secret societies and who traces the origins of the New World Order, to the Knights Templar, believing that that group wanted to gain secret control of all of Europe so that they would be able to protect the masses from supernatural threats. And then Terence White, both of the Ivory Tower, who don't think the tr uh, convention came into existence until the organization under Queen Victoria. This is one of the first cases where the mass reorganization under Queen Victoria and Queen Victoria possibly being a lead technocrat really comes up. I'm super looking forward to Victorian Mage hopefully expanding that more. The next thing we have is a note on paradigm, how the technocracy works, magic, 
and Ascension. And in my head, you kind of have levels. You have Vulgar, you have Vulgar Without Witnesses, you have Coincidental, you have the New World Order, and then you have Mundane. So Mundane are things that are actually baked into reality. No magical effect was actually done. The New World Order, in my mind, wins the award for least identifiable as magic in terms of what they do. Their effects are super subtle. They do very slow motion work. They do a lot of prep work. And a lot of the things they do aren't actually identifiable as magic. And I like that because it very much presents the idea that even when it comes to things that aren't directly obvious technologies, like a new piece of laser equipment or a new piece of computer equipment, it is still possible for the technocracy to advance the timetable such that something slips from being magical to being mundane. And a lot of what the NWO kind of borders on that. The next section we have is more detail on the methodologies, where they get their sleeper sympathizers from, as well as cases where they have kind of been seen operating in the mundane world. We get a section on internal relations, and they talk very openly about how they are in charge. And the statement they use is something to the effect of, we get to write the agenda because we're the ones who call the symposia. We're also the only ones willing to do all the bureaucratic work, and that gives us immense power. And it is weird to say, like, he who controls the filing cabinet controls the world, but that's kind of the idea that we get here. Also, they kind of suggest that they are much more adroit political machinations than any of the other groups. We get a long section on tradition mages and how they more or less convert each of the groups, which was fascinating, the pressure and levers that they apply for each group. And one of my favorites is the one for Sons of Ether, where the opening line is, of course I believe in the triumph of science. And you're like, oh, okay, I understand how this conversation unfolds from here. And then in the final section, we get procedures, gadgets, and agents. This is the first time we kind of hear the term gadget. It's not quite in the modern sense of the word gadget, as in, in mage Argo but it's getting there where it gives you a bunch of effects, gives you a bunch of focuses, and it gives you a beautifully rendered amalgam and also walks through how they work, how it interfaces with their idea of how paradox works. And the the character Arthur Father and Gray is a character I have loved forever. I didn't even know it at the time, but I realized this douchebag is the kind of douchebag I want to be one day. And I've spent <laughs> most of my life trying to be more like him, whether I'm comfortable recognizing it or not. And, well, uh, that explains everything, Terry. It, it does. <laughs> it does. The last 22 years of my life have been spent uh, slowly approximating um, <laughs> this man, this gray man. And those are the sections. So what did you think? Yeah, I, I actually felt like reading through the book. It's like, wow, this is actually very efficient. We're not spending time on like an append any appendices or, or intros or preludes. or It's like, l let's jump in page one and let's go. And it, uh, Some of the things um, I, I saw in the book, uh, on page 13, there is an illustration, I, I believe it's by Johnson, that is a shout out to fans of the early 80s uh uh, role-playing game Top Secret by, I believe, TSR put it out at the time. And, of course, TSR is no longer around as, as a solvent company today. But um, that was the first secret agent role-playing game. And so it's just kind of appropriate that they do an illustration shout-out to the original box cover of that on page 13. I thought that was fun. Also, the example early on in the book of uh, of the signature character Gene, who is a genetic construct. That's a construct with a lowercase c. That means a person who was made in a progenitor tank. He is not only awakening to becoming more more fully human and, and forming relationships and more of a coherent personality, but also becoming enlightened 
and uh, being able to use, you know, enlightened technology, which you could say is another term for sphere magic. And it's just neat to see how he's um, he's developing and uh, see a good example of how you might put an NPC like that uh, in into your story. So I appreciated that. The first two chapters I thought showed a very good example of how to work with New World Order NPCs as a storyteller. Because in my mind, you've, you've got people who are You've got people who are bad at lying, and you take a step up. You've got people who are really, really good at it, and then you get a step up from there, and you've got, like, master operators. But, I mean, the people who operate at the master level, you come to them, and you ask them a question, and they tell you, it doesn't even matter. It's not even an issue. There's no reasonable answer to give you. The fact that you're asking me a question shows that you don't know what's going on. That is the master operator. And we see that in conversations between the signature character, Gene, and I believe it's Roland uh, Cassalt or, or Casso. It is an interesting mirroring of the central fight that is the Ascension War. This is the group that best implements the idea that reality is subjective, and they fully understand what they're doing, which in a weird way gives them access, I think, to almost the truest truth. You have Iteration X with this very physics causality-based view of the world, and there is the, the specific line of the answer to the question depends on who is asking the question and who you are asking it of. And at first it just kind of sounds like, oh, they're being kiss-ass suck-ups. But no, this is the Ascension War. The answer to the question changes on who, who is asking it and who you are asking it of. And I thought that the, the entire book was kind of a meditation on that. How I implement that as a storyteller, I have no idea. But in, <laughs> in here, they do a good idea of kind of outlining it. Well, also on another level, it shows how closely integrated uh, their tactics are with with their uh, daily operations because they've got skeletons in the closet that they actually want to hide. One thing that I just wanted to bring up, and of course for Mage fans, this is is it's obvious. When you look back at uh, in the World of Darkness history, you go hundreds of years back, and you've got the or the game, the Sorcerer's Crusade. The technocracy used to be called the Order of Reason, and you see good representations of each of the modern technocracy conventions back in the basically Renaissance era, and they had different names and different um, uh, personalities to some extent. But the New World Order was called the Cabal of Pure Thought, and the Cabal of Pure Thought was all about um, manipulating Christian religion. It was uh, very tightly uh, integrating into the Catholic Church at that time and uh, manipulating people over uh, theology and, and guilt and religious ideas and the religious culture of that time. You have the modern uh, New World Order, which is not a religious group. There's, there's no religious connection. I would even go so far as to say they probably discourage uh, spirituality and, and religious uh, thinking among their members. And so it's like, well, that's, that's a big change. And when you think of the New World Order's basic theme, and that is we want to use the most effective methods to control the most people and achieve our objectives, you know, the particular details don't matter to us. That was a good way to get the job done. And as things changed, they they change tactics. And it's and, interesting uh, because I am, I, they, they very explicitly say that their effects are predicated on the masses' willingness to believe the media. 
And I wonder how the NWO is going to age in a quote-unquote post-truth world. Like, it is not the idea that they are directly manipulating people's minds so much as they are manipulating the institutions that sleepers believe have authority. So it was the church, and then it became the media and the government. And now, as everyone gets a little more skeptical of everything, I wonder if that has made their job easier or harder. I can see it kind of going both ways. Is it the case that instead of controlling the big four networks, they now have to control 30 media fronts, that they have to infiltrate left-wing, right-wing, centrist, Twitter, so on and so forth, media-wise? Or is it to the point where they it, they have to be much more blatant? I, I'm super curious to see in Technocracy Reloaded how the 21st century NWO operates, because that linchpin that they there is this font of truth that sleepers believe and that they have the ability to manipulate that is gone. Yeah, I, I guess now that you bring it up uh, and I think it through, yeah, that New World Order may be going through quite a change in the, the later 21st century version of the world of darkness. Just to complete the thought on the cabal of, of pure thought, um, I think that the uh, New World Order really wants to hide from its current members and especially people outside of the new world or they they, they want to hide these connections they had to the cabal of pure thoughts oh you used to be religious nuts who fanned the flames of you know religious tension and it's like oh no no wasn't us that was someone totally different yep that was the gabrielites <laughs> yeah and also as just a mage fan I, I i i've been a mage fan since the game came out in 93 and i think it's interesting how there are uh, so many mage fans um, who, uh, through you know, online discussions and uh, con contributions to Anders Mage page back in the day, and all these different things, it's like they were constantly blaming all these bad things that happened in the past on the celestial chorus. And it's like a lot of times I, I wanted to come into these conversations and say, well, well hold on, <laughs> they were not the only mages uh, involved with religion back in the Middle Ages uh, and uh, Renaissance of the West. Uh, there was the cabal of pure thought. In fact it really looks to me as though the cabal of pure thought did a lot of dirty deeds then changed their name changed the sign out front and then said oh celestial course they were so bad hundreds <laughs> of years ago they they were just awful just look at all that awful stuff they did you were talking about uh, what they call chapter three i really like that it was a large chapter there were a lot of roads there was a lot of equipment uh, there was a lot of um, stats on npcs and, and information that is good whether you are a player or a storyteller is setting up some NPCs. So uh, the final chapter is on the example construct, which we've seen in every convention book. In this case, uh, you said it was the Divisadero Safe House in San Francisco, California. I, I just thought it was more interesting. It was it was better done than the last two convention books, Iteration X and Progenitors. It connects to a Horizon Realm, you know, big surprise there. But the Horizon Realm is is more interesting. It's yeah. it's more a place where I would consider taking my players rather than the first two convention books. It's like I, I don't have any particular reason to want to use this. Can I share my favorite device that they mention? So one, I find it fascinating that like at this point, the television camera that's small is a magical device. So this goes in the case of the timetable has rolled forward and what was once magical is now mundane. Like my cell phone, if it existed in this game, would probably be like a five-point talisman or something like that if we were to move it back then. But there's a part where they mention nitro injection. So one of the signature vehicles is the Spectre Limousine or the Spectre Sedan, which is the the standard, uh, not necessarily even field issue, but one of the options that 
a NWO agent can request and use when doing a mission. So one of the things that makes the technocracy interesting is they have a statistic that I don't know if it has been introduced yet, but this idea of requisitions that you can temporarily get equipment for a mission. And one of the standard ones they have is this armored sedan or armored limousine that can have any number of statistics like run flat tires or access to a radar array or the ability to shoot out an oil slick. But they mention one of the vehicles having nitro injection. And instead of nitro being nitrous oxide, they say it's nitroglycerin. It is nitroglycerin and quintessence. And I'm like, that's that's going to be an interesting vehicle fueled by a high <laughs> explosive. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess I didn't catch that on my read. It's like I remember reading about the nitro, but nitroglycerin, well, dang. So uh, I think you and I read this under slightly different circumstances. I, again, I read this book in the back of a car during a terribly long car ride, so I had nothing else to look at. So it was just me, this book, and my cell phone taking notes the entire time. We also get a reference to Esperanto on page 67, that the Divisadero that was, safe yeah, heart. Yep. Cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it says uh, earlier in uh, Digital Web that uh, Esperanto is being learned by secret agent John Courage. And here we have some more New World Order agents learning it. And as we said before, this is it, it's fun to see. really brings in that strong 90s feel for a book written in the 90s. Which... And it shows the boundless hopefulness of the technocracy that one day Esperanto will unite us all. And I mean, like, <laughs> man, that would be great. I, I think there should be a counter thing where the traditions are like, we should all learn Enochian. And the dream speakers are like, these white people. Well, before moving on, I thought it was fun that they have a Spectre limousine, which back in the 60s was the uh, villain organization that James Bond faced off against in the novels and later in the movies. And I I think they bring that into the the, the newer, the latest batch of uh, James Bond movies. They have Spectre again. They do. With the the great line of, as said by Judy Dench, of everyone says that they have people everywhere, but these guys actually do. I think I remember the scene from that movie. She says, they say we have people everywhere. My florist says that. (laughs) (laughs) But you make mention of Spectre. Like, this book is so thoroughly littered with the source material. I feel like I remember reading it at the time and having never watched The Prisoner or La Femme Nikita or 1984 at that point, I'm like, what are all these references? Where I feel like in contrast to the Akashic Brotherhood book where there was no recommended reading list, this book was like, not only is this recommended, but if you haven't read at least two of these, it's not going to make any sense to you. This is a, a one of those uh, maybe could be rare examples of the author being really well versed in the inspirational material. Uh, there are some mage books where I, I get the sense that the author did the book and then said, "Okay, wh- wh- what could I do for a recommended reading list? Okay, these look good; these seem appropriate." But in this case, I, I get the impression that uh, the author uh, Brian Campbell uh, got to the source, you know, the inspirational material first really soaked himself in it and then said, okay, my book on the New World Order is going to flow from this. And there is um, a, a bit of a problem with that in a few places where he's describing a gadget or or a technique, uh, uh, wrote perhaps, and he's saying, it's like this scene from this movie, or it's like this device that they used in this TV show. And it's like, for one or two of them, I was like, oh, I, I haven't seen that, so this doesn't help me, unfortunately. But setting aside some of the drawbacks to this, I had a lot of quotes in the book that were from the recommended reading. So it was it was so well integrated. And again, there were all these references to the British 1967 television show, The Prisoner. So it's like, I, this week I actually broke down and says, okay, enough. I have had so many people talk about this TV show. I've never seen it or even have a friend who's seen it. It, it, it is time to do something about this. So I 
managed to find time to watch the first three episodes of that show. And I was thinking, oh, oh my gosh, this is New World Order, the TV show. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who is number one? You are number six. I am number two. This was a, a television show made back in 1967 on a, uh, back at the time, television show budget. So it is not a high-budget show, even though they do have a lot of special sets and, and high-tech gadgets. It's uh, You could easily view this as a story about the New World Order catching one of their own rogue agents and then pulling him in. But but instead of eliminating him or dealing with him harshly, this rogue agent has such valuable information that they treat him with kid gloves. There is a member of the British Secret Service who is a, a field agent. He's done a lot of uh, probably uh, dirty deeds. And in the opening credits to the first episode, in every episode, they establish that he suddenly resigns. And when he resigns, he feels very strongly about it. I mean, he, he, there's no sound, but of course you see a video clip of him uh, chewing out his, his boss at uh, British Intelligence uh, in a government building. And then he walks out and gets in his cool the convertible sports car and drives off. And that very same day, he is gassed. He's put to sleep by some unknown character and he's kidnapped and he's taken to an island location, which is set up as a sort of special secret uh, base of uh, agents. And they're saying, we will not tell you where you are. We will not let you leave. We're good at keeping people here. We tightly control every aspect of life for every single person living in this fake sort of village resort kind of town. And you're going to tell us what you know. And of course, the main character is uh, totally strong-willed and uh, self-possessed. And he says, uh, well, well, who are you guys? Are you, are you the British intelligence? Because, you know, I'm, I'm down with that. And there's like, we aren't even going to tell you who we are. You tell us everything. We will tell you nothing. And so he is extremely strong-willed and stubborn. And he says, no, I'm going to hold out. And we get 17 episodes of this show where in every episode, the, this secret unnamed organization is trying yet another New World Order style uh, cloak and dagger ploy to get the information out of him. And he is so smart, he catches on and he is so stubborn, he holds out. And I'm, I'm going to continue watching the episodes to see how it ends because I'm awfully curious. It is one of those remarkable shows where you're like, this could never be made now. And it's a BBC show. So you look at the episodes and they're like 56 minutes long. You're like, man, the world was better before we had so many commercials. Yeah, and, exactly. And it's kind of interesting in that the character is a union of the the merit indomitable will. I think that's clear. He's got like eight, nine or ten points of willpower. But also to me, the thing that I started believing, I think he used to be the guy who ran the village. I think he is so familiar with it because that's kind of what he was doing to a certain extent. In the same way that John Courage has been able to evade capture for so long because he knows the methods of the new world order. It is interesting how much it informed culture. When I go to a convention, I always make a point of whenever I see someone dressed in number six in his distinctive white outline suit, usually with a anti-escape orb in the form of like a large latex balloon to take that person's picture. And the line, I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. As he says that, it is both a statement of of defiance and a statement of irony because it is very obvious that he has been all of those things and his life is not his own and his act of defiance is like his only expression of free will in this world and it is up to the viewer to see if that is heroic or tragic or possibly both 
If you read one thing, read 1984. If you watch one thing, look at a few episodes of The Prisoner. Uh, I had trouble uh, actually trying to buy it on DVD. Uh, It's been out of print apparently on DVD for a while, and so you can pay more for it. But Amazon Prime has all the episodes right there in in a very good uh, resolution. So, I mean, if you want to see it, you can see it. It's not that hard to get your hands on it. What did you think about the section on mindscaping? So for the listener, they talk about how... When a rote is employed, when a mind rote is done, say mind three correspondence three to subtly change someone's view of the world, that is often done by something that is seemingly like dream manipulation, where memories are subtly altered and they strongly recommend role playing through it, which as a storyteller seems terribly hard to role-play through the process of subtly changing someone's memories. As a storyteller, have you ever role-played through something like that, like a character going through the different degrees? I had a long-running online chronicle, and at that at that time, I had material set up for dealing with New World Order in the chronicle, and I was actually looking forward to, to getting to work with that. And as it turns out, my players uh, jumped on the story threads that led away from the technocracy, not towards it, so I did not get to use the technocracy in my chronicles much as I plan to, but on a, a quite limited scale, there was one particular game session where I got to put in a, a bite of that, and that was the player characters had found a nightclub that they thought some villain group was operating out of, and it turns out that it was a technocracy establishment. Uh, they had a, you know something going on upstairs, and they had a uh, technocratic device with a capital D, a sort of technocracy talisman that was uh, basically um, a device that worked its way into the music and the light display, and it altered the minds of the people there to make them see things that they shouldn't if they were acting against the technocracy. And of course, the player characters came in to, you know, they were looking for the back room and the people running the place so that they could shake him up and get some information. And one of the characters botched his role. And he was actually, he was playing an Akashic uh, brother, uh, Brotherhood character. And uh, so and so this guy botched his role. And so he said, okay, I'm not going to tell him. I said, okay, uh, he, as, as a character, he was always very cognizant of how good he was in, in physical conflicts. And so he thought of himself as like the muscle for the group. And so I said, okay, a person with a you know, oriental melee weapon, jumps out of the crowd and attacks you. And he didn't even stop to say, oh, well, this is really darn strange in a nightclub where everybody's dancing. <laughs> he just said, oh, yeah, I'm ready for this. I'm going to fight. And it's like, okay, I got this guy. So yeah. <laughs> I actually pulled dice and went through a fight. And I stacked the deck on purpose to make this a very difficult NPC. And the NPC won the fight, took him out. His health levels on his character sheet were you know, below zero. And so uh, the player character was, was uh, a good sport. And he said, yeah, okay. I, I get it. My character's dead. All right. I get this. I said, you're right. I said, I'll get back to you. And I just, uh, you know, seen with uh, the other players. And then I got back to him and said, and then you wake up. He's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I said, wake up. He said, well, I, I'm, I'm rolling stats on my new character. He says, well, why would you do that? Your old character woke up. He's like, seriously? I'm like, well, you're there. You're there on the nightclub. You're looking around. Some people are staring at you. And then the other players came up to him. They said, dude, well, are, are you okay? What's up? You were like totally flipping out on the dance floor. It's like people have, have called management. Everybody was giving you a wide berth. You were swinging your weapons around. You had this crazed look in your eye. We're really worried about you, man. He's like, oh my gosh, I was totally fooled. And it makes me wonder if the higher level people are either one, so incredibly hardened against it that it is almost impossible to use these subtle mind procedures. I kind of were, I, I could see it going either way, that the people in control 
are the only reason they got there is that they are so good at it that there is no point in using it against each other because of how good at it they are. Or it is this weird constant internal war and you just get used to the fact that everyone at all times is subtly trying to screw with you. And I'm terribly curious as to which, like, quote unquote, in canon is the case. The impression I get is that the lower level and newer soldiers of, of the technocracy have to adjust to this. It's like they're forced to get used to it. But one of the rewards of rising up in the ranks is this idea that we're going to give back to you what we took and we're not going to mess with you in that way anymore. That's one of the privileges of proving yourself and, and rising in rank and influence. Oh, it kind of makes sense. Kind of like in 1984 where O'Brien mentions that one of the privileges of rank is that he's allowed to turn off the security equipment that is constantly monitoring him. And I guess before we get off the, the train of rotes and devices, it is interesting in that a lot of the stuff is surprisingly high level. We get a lot of four and five dot rotes. Uh, destructive paranoia is mind four, entropy two, prime two. Degree absolute is mind five, correspondence four. Alter paradigm is mind five, entropy five. It kind of gives you an idea of like, there, there's some heavy hitting magic to be used. It is subtle, but it is hard. Same thing with the devices. They bring up a lot of Arite 4 to Arite 7, five dot gadgets in here. And that was kind of impressive to me that they're like, we are an organized unified group. We that we do have frontline agents, but everyone has access kind of to the super powerful stuff. These are the benefits of being an organized, well-functioning group. We can have nice stuff and we can all share it. Once again, sharing and cooperation is a sign that you're the bad guy in Mage. <laughs> I also like the section on the extraction device, which is basically a in case of emergency hit button and you get teleported out. And it makes a side note. If the agent is wounded or killed in the process of using this, this is often considered their punishment for requiring extraction. And I'm like, yep, that's the technocracy I know. I wanted to just quickly say that in the Book of Shadows, the Mage Player's Guide, which had the number seven on the spine, uh, it talked about the divide between the divide that exists in the technocracy between those who are on the front lines, those who are um, rubbing shoulders with sleepers in in on Earth every day, and those who are in the ivory tower, as it were, those who are, who are in horizon realms or who are in uh, you know, secret technocracy locations who are charting the future but not worrying about the consequences each day. And that divide was uh, pretty well represented here. They, they show it as a divide between uh, the operatives and the ivory tower. With they kind of gave a slightly different representation of it, where like Iteration X, the people in the ivory tower are all about advancing technology, where the people on the front lines are all about killing reality deviants. Here, it was a case where the people on the front lines are all about controlling media and taking out sleepers that are proving problematic and indoctrinating new people. And the people in the ivory tower are spending their time, again, the the idea, not necessarily the methodology, uh, the people in control or the people in the horizon realms are fighting like internal wars over who can do a better job of convincing everyone that their view of history is correct. It is a different kind of schism. And I thought that was super interesting. It was, it was definitely. Well, now that I've talked about the methodologies, I think it's time to cover them. Yeah. <laughs> now that we've talked about the methodologies, let's talk about the methodologies. The three methodologies that we are given in this book are first, the operatives. These are your standard persons in black, persons in gray, and persons in white. And this is the group that is kind of the, the frontline group in terms of actively engaging the enemy. So each of the methodologies has their frontline sleeper-facing active organization, but they all operate in different ways. I love how much detail they go into in how a 
Men in Black group will operate. They make mention of the legendary precision that the group has, and they give three different ways that that happens. One is with a simple time effect, synchronized watches. The second is with the idea that these entities may all be vat grown. So at a genetic level, they are super familiar with how all the other entities are going to go in the same way that twins have that super weird twin language that they sometimes talk to each other in. If you were grown from identical genetic stock and you have been trained together, you're probably going to be super on the same page. And the third method they indicate is with simple mind procedures. We're quite literally there telepathically communicating during the entire time and how unnerving that can look to someone who is not used to dealing with it and the perfect precision of a bunch of folks in in very nice suits attacking you all at once. As it goes up, you have the Gray Men, which kind of focus more on infiltration and getting into other organizations and either affecting them or using that as a way to extract more information. And then finally, you have, in terms of control, which is a term we don't really have in common parlance yet, you have the, the white suits that operate in Horizon Constructs. The second methodology we have is the Ivory Tower. They oversee uh, education and administration of the group. They have absolute armies of sympathizers in terms of educators, academics, teachers, psychologists, computer programmers, and so on. And this is a group that tries to actively what they call program reality, as in get their ideas into mass media, control it, and set the intellectual agenda. They kind of work with the idea that academia dictates the ideas that will suffuse society, those will work their way into mass media. So by controlling both ends of that, they get to dictate the narrative. And their belief that their ability to control these two institutions of authority, one being academia, the other being mass media, is what gives them so much power. The third unit they have are the Watchers. They are based on surveillance, media, and communications. Their sympathizers work in mundane television and radio, within phone companies and other communication groups. And their sympathizers generally don't quite know necessarily what's going on. They have their their field reporters. They also have Horizon Constructs that contain more remote operation groups. The thing that kind of felt flat to me is we get a clear hierarchy for the MIB, for the operatives, on how it goes from one to the other. And we kind of get a clear idea for the Ivory Tower of what the hierarchy looks like. I don't think we did a very good job of getting what the Watcher's methodology looks like. They talk about the surveyors standing at the top of the pyramid, overseeing the efficiency of the war on all fronts, including working with deep universal surveillance with the patrols of the void engineers. But that was kind of, it, it fell a little bit flat for me. But those are the methodologies. And the thing that I super liked about this section is whenever they use the term war, they capitalize it. They are referring to the war, the Ascension War. Now, as a longtime Mage fan, um, I was thinking back to my experience in 1997 when the Man in Black movie came out with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Uh, now, of course, that's you know, very easy to, to think of. The movie is called Man in Black, and uh, four years earlier, Mage came out, and they had their Men in Black and so it's, it's a natural go-to with this movie. I don't mention it for, for the obvious uh, uh, cues you can take from it. I mention it because as a mage fan, I was really paying attention to forums and online discussions and, and also offline discussions with other mage fans at conventions and other gatherings. And uh, when that movie came out, there was a change in the mage fandom. There were all of a sudden a lot of mage fans who were saying, hey, I, I could start a technocracy chronicle. I could I could open up the option and have my players play technocrat mages in mage. I, I could like switch and do the other side. And yeah, you know, I, I of course was was already thinking in that direction. So it's like, yes, finally, we've got a large number of mage fans who have realized 
uh, like Will Smith's character said in the movie, um, when he was indicating his suit and talking to Tommy Lee Jones' uh, character, he was saying, you know what the difference is between you and me? He points to his tie. I make this look good. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was it for, uh, for Mage Fandom. It's like all of a sudden it's like, hey, I can make this look good. In the same way that everyone wanted to be a trench coat ninja after the Matrix came out. So like, I guess it, so. I pop guess culture so. does that. I like the fact that, so I am working on a supplement that is tentatively entitled The Book of Knobs. And hopefully by the time this episode goes out 17 months after we recorded it, this book will be available <laughs> on the Storyteller Vault. But my opening question is, what does darkness mean in the world of darkness and dark for who? And one of the options I present is if you do not want to do a Iron Age comic, thanks Josh Heath, super gritty chronicle, one representation of darkness is the idea that mundane reality is as it is, but there are also unknown assailants who are attacking it, and the Awakened community spends most of their time fighting internally and dealing with those agents. So the Men in Black Chronicle, where you have the good guy technocrats defending the sleepers from these threats from outside reality, I love as an idea because it allows you to have a world of darkness and that kind of deception is is perfectly reasonable, but also fits with most of the themes of the game. Uh, well, moving on, talking about the New World Order as as a larger group in Mage, uh, I said towards the beginning of the episode that I agree with with most Mage fans and published materials that this works. They work better as a villain group. They they seem to naturally fall into that role. One, they focus on the sphere of mind, and also the Akashic Brotherhood focuses on the sphere of mind, and so it can be interesting to see how different these two groups are, even though they. They have such a similar focus. The Akashic Brotherhood and Sisterhood, they focus on mind, but it is to be mindful. It is to be more aware of themselves. And as they become more aware of themselves, they can become more well of others and they can better connect with others. And then you have the New World Order who focuses on mind and they say, look, this is a means to an end. This is a tool to control others. And that is the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super interesting because when they go over the tradition section, they talk about how the Akashic Brotherhood falls into the two categories, those who st seek to strengthen the mind and those who seek to strengthen the, the body and how practitioners often focus on one with the expense of the other and more or less how you use the other to deal with them. So the people who focus on the, the body too much are super easy to attack with psionic assaults and mentally bamboozle and they make mention of, I think the line is, those who seek to strengthen the mind are harder to manipulate cruder methods are sometimes necessary where you're like uh huh and then the following line is showing the weakness of their primitive fighting techniques is one way to demoralize your enemy and you're like shots fired i have yet to see a martial artist who could stand up to the average chain gun which i think is the perfect summary of the shortcoming of anyone who thinks that mages are overpowered also the new world order focuses on information look much like the virtual adepts but Again, we see a big difference. The virtual adepts are, are really fascinated in information itself. Whereas you have the New World Order, information is a means to an end. We want to know everything so that no one's going to get the drop on us. Their control of information is not because of a, an appreciation of or fascination with information. It's just a tool. Uh, at the end of the day, the real central theme to New World Order is control. They want to control others so that they're on top. And as a storyteller, if you choose to say their motivation for that is insecurity or just plain selfishness or, or something else, that's something you can work out in your own chronicle. But when I try to think about how do I use the New World Order effectively in, in, an, in an interesting way in an ongoing chronicle, that's 
that's my my handle on it is they are all about control and that is why they are all over information and it's interesting to also think about the divide in the technocracy that has been mentioned a few times between these two conventions that seem to naturally fall into the role of, of leadership or influence more than the hard science groups uh, and that is the, the syndicate new world order divide and it's interesting for me to consider how the New World Order it was really focused on complete centralized control. And for that reason, they focus on uh, a, a powerful central government. And, of course, uh, many people can, can take that and go into particular times from history. I, I'm not trying to you know divide the readership or the listenership and say that uh, – you know, a capitalist country is, is the real bad guy here or a socialist com uh, country is the real bad guy here or anything like that. But but just this idea, which I think we can all get behind, that the New World Order really favors and wants to encourage a authoritative, strong, uh, centralized government that is in, in control of as much as possible because that is easier – for the New World Order to establish control. If there's one strong government controlling everything and we're the power manipulating that government, it's just more efficient for us to take control of all this country and all the citizens living there. And then you have the syndicate who uh, I really see uh, as looking at more of the big picture rather than influencing the government and using that to influence everyone else. They want to uh, look at the media, the economy, the ideas in people's heads. Basically, we want to have an influence on the overall atmosphere and let things flow from that. Yeah, the New World Order is always going to try and control whatever represents authority. So they almost strictly work with where the syndicate is always trying to control resources and systems. And yeah. I am well curious played. to see how a 21st century interface is going to be, as some would argue that the political arena has kind of ceded central authority to these factional camps and the actions of, of billionaires and large corporations has become more important. What happens when the, the controller of uh, economic resources and the controllers of authority kind of become the same entity. What is that war going to look like between the two if there is one? And maybe the, the, they're the technocracy. Again, only the bad guys can cooperate. They probably find a way to work alongside amicably, which makes for a much I less guess, interesting chronicle. Now, another thing that um, I emphasize in my chronicles is, uh, for me, it's interesting to see which uh, mage faction feels a connection with which segment of sleeper society. Uh, for example, uh, it would not be stretching things too far to say that the Verbena tradition from the Council of Nine would feel a certain kinship with um, you know, Wiccan groups or Druidic sort of groups. Of course, you can work that out as you like in your, in your own chronicle. But with the New World Order, I see a natural connection with uh, the intelligence communities of the world. I, I see the New World Order as, as feeling a, a kind of parental, sentimental connection. All of these, these intelligence agencies that, that send their agents around the world to spy on people, uh, I see the New World Order as being more lenient with these sleepers when they catch them. They're less likely to be hard on them uh, and say, no, it's like, this is what we do, and this is what you do, and we feel a kinship here, and, and we like the fact that you guys are operating, and we're manipulating you behind the scenes, and so we'll go easier on you when you get in our way. Yeah, I'm also curious to see if there is the exact opposite of any organization that would be able to secretly discover that there is this entity called the Technocratic Union, and they're subtly manipulating everyone. They would be the group 
perhaps most likely to realize that that is happening. So it may be one of those cases of keep your friends close and your enemies closer, that mm-hmm. they respect what they do, but they also recognize the power of the toolbox that they hold in their hands. Once again, enlightened science is amazing, but seven billion sleepers can do a lot of stuff. For me, in a lot of ways, the New World Order can be considered the most devious of enemies in the world of mage. Their tactics induce paranoia and make mages doubt themselves. And this takes an axe to the root of a mage's power. And I I just see this as being such a devious strike at the cornerstone of magic that they make a really devious enemy in your chronicles. So don't let that go to waste. Yeah, the three ways I've used the New World Order is one, straight up men in black show up. The black limousine arrives, five people step out working in lockstep unison, and okay, your character has access to forces three or forces four, but they have five guns that do aggravated damage because of premium bullets or whatever. That's that's tough to counter. Plus, they have air backup, and the sleeper police are on their side as well. It's the only time I've ever really done a car chase. The second time I like to use the New World Order is to pit a group against itself, by planting evidence that someone else in the cabal is betraying the rest of the group where they have not quite been infiltrated, but a New World Order watcher has discovered that there is this cabal that is active. They don't have the ability to confront it directly, but they do have the ability to complicate life for it, where they take the the tensions that make the mage game interesting, the, the fundamental tension between the Euthanatos member and the Akashic and the history there and kind of ramp up that dissonance either through direct mind effects or by planting evidence or by implying that one of those people is a turncoat and the third way is flat out blackmail i love the chronicle where they're like hey you thought you subtly did this paradox effect out of the views of anyone well i've taken it and i've altered it and now it looks like you're killing someone in a dark alley what are you willing to do to make this tape go away and I love the the chronicle where it's either temporarily strange bedfellows or where the mage has to do this and keep it on the down low and accomplish some sort of mission while the other characters aren't looking. I'm not a big fan of having one plot for one person and a plot for everyone else. So usually I have the entire group in on it. So I, I have done ones where, hey, I have this doctored video of your group doing this thing that is not socially acceptable. We need your expertise to deal with a wraith. And once you do, I will make sure that this goes away. Also, you'll notice that your the rent on your chantry will be paid for the next six months because we're, we're going to play nice. And th- those are the three ways I have used the NWO. Here's just an idea for storytellers. If you're a particularly devious storyteller, you can do something that I would never do because I'm such a nice guy. But you could do this, theoretically. <laughs> uh, you... <laughs> Uh, you could, uh, in the first session, when you're you're sitting down uh, with your players, um, uh, your character it turns out to be a member of this other tradition in the past, and you changed over, and so you know these things, and it's going to help the chronicle, and, and we'll keep this on the down low, and we'll let it come out slowly through the chronicle, or you've got amnesia, and we're going to say that you know this is your past. And it's, it's something you know harmless and good, and the player signs up for it. He's like, yeah, it'd be kind of fun to bring that out slowly, and I can work with the storyteller and do this. And then when you sit down at that first session, You look at all your players together and you say, hey, uh, Tom or or Mary over here had this really cool idea and uh, we're going to keep it secret. We're going to let it come out, you know, slowly in the game. This this is going to be pretty cool. And uh, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag because, you know, Tom has such a cool idea and Tom's over there smiling like, yeah, this is going to be fun. And then in the Chronicle, 
you start slipping notes or or evidence or whatever to the other player characters, giving them evidence that the one player is a like a sleeper agent, a double agent or a sleeper agent or doesn't know that he's going to be activated and betray the party or he's genetically grown and, and th- this is unavoidable. He's going to go bad or, or, or something like this. And so you have the other players going, oh, this is the cool idea. Well, you know, we're going to work against this player. The, uh, then after enough time, you know, Tom or, or Mary is sitting over there. It's like, what? Everybody's against me. What's going on here? <laughs> it's like by the end, you reveal it's like, folks, this is a new world order. They don't play nice. Exactly. <laughs> This is, this is how you justify three dots in dark fate. Well, that kind of summarizes everything I had to say. I guess the only thing that we didn't discuss is they go back and forth about the Karpov incident and how it kind of bridges additions in my mind. So for the listener, the Karpov incident was a case where a noted diplomat was poked by a guy with an umbrella that have to, happened to be tipped, I think, with polonium. And the person gets sick and, and dies shortly thereafter. There is a split in the New World Order as to how to interpret this. One, was it just A-level gadgeteering? Did they have this injector umbrella pre-made? Two, was it used to pass off a coincidental effect? And I don't know about you, but poke an umbrella, kill a guy, and justify it after the fact and make it coincidental is pretty pretty strong first edition juju to me. And they also talk about how once this got into the mainstream and there's an argument internally over was this leaked or on purpose or not, that the idea that this kind of black hat mirror shade stuff, this kind of spycraft occurs, it became much easier for them to do everything else because that idea was already planted amongst the sleepers. I find it interesting that they talk about in the Virtual Adept book about how important science fiction authors were in promoting their paradigm and making their magic easier, but we don't get a huge reference here on how James Bond novels and John le Carre novels and so on may have made the New World Order's operations easier. And that was kind of the last main point I had from my notes on on this this incident that kind of bridged first edition to second edition. My final point was um, I like the early first edition idea that uh, mages are few and far between and they are the most valuable uh, resource in the Ascension War. And so I tried to portray that in my chronicles by having a new world order that would rather convert or recruit mages rather than kill them. And so um, I, I have men in black who show up and, and they really try to, to capture more than kill. Uh, that That's their first choice. But um, yeah, my only addition to there is, did you ever see the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? I have heard that's based on a novel, but I have not seen the movie or read the book, unfortunately. So I was literally watching the entirety of the movie on a treadmill. And this is this is my perfect analogy for how hard NWO plots can be to represent and to pull off elegantly. I watched the movie from first frame to last frame. I had the subtitles on. I had descriptive audio on because I like that sometimes when I'm on my treadmill. I had a Wikipedia page up where I was double checking things as I went. And I still managed to miss the fact that there was a love triangle, there was a double agent, there was a second double agent, and there was someone who was secretly trying to have another guy killed. I didn't notice any of that stuff until I watched a 10-minute review of it on YouTube after I was done. And I said to myself, I was literally Googling some of this historical information as we were going, and I did nothing but watch this. I wasn't diddling with my phone. I was on a treadmill staring at the subtitles, and I still managed to miss all of this plot. And that's why the NWO is hard. 
Yeah. Well, just just one minor note. Um, in the recommended reading towards the end, they recommend the film, uh, uh, the anime film, uh, Black Magic M sixty six from I think it was the late eighties. And I I have that on DVD. I've seen it several times. I've discussed it with many people, and I actually don't understand why it's on the recommended reading list. I mean, I could possibly see connecting that to Iteration X, but I don't understand why that's a. Uh, on the recommended reading list for New World Order, so I'm I'm a dim bulb on that one. Well, what is what is the anime about? It's a science fiction story about a, uh, a near future setting where two military robots are being transported from one place to another. There's a crash. Um, they're accidentally activated, and so soldiers have to deal with them in the wild. They take out one of the robots. The other robot goes to a city and is hunting down to kill the daughter of its inventor because of you know faulty training programming it had in the past. And finally, the military uh, takes out the robot, and, and the story's done. Yeah, you had your movie that mystified you, and I've got mine that mystified me. But moving on, um, I've got three adventure ideas that I thought I'd like to, to share with everyone. First off, a player in your group discovers they can't contact a sleeper friends or family. They're online... The, Accounts have changed or they've moved away. And then the mage starts finding evidence that she isn't who the, she thought she was. A raid on a technocracy stronghold reveals records that she was brainwashed or trained there willingly as an agent. She receives a communication from a New World Order agent who, when confronted and made to talk, admits he didn't know the mage hadn't been activated yet. After enough of this carefully placed evidence stacks up, the mage will start to doubt herself. Is it only a matter of time before she snaps and becomes a loyal New World Order agent? Or is it all an elaborate trick to make her doubt herself? Number two, an amalgam of technocracy characters, after some rough assignments on the front lines, are rewarded with a plum job. They are sent to a New World Order orbital construct to root out possible virtual adept saboteurs hiding in the construct. At first, they enjoy the comforts there and are treated well by technocracy leaders and great thinkers. As time goes on, they learn how the station works. They begin to see some disturbing elements of the technocracy elite hiding under the surface. Then the virtual adept strike. Uh, the virtual adepts have smuggled cybernetic systems aboard that interface with the construct to copy information and interfere with research projects. As the players start to oppose the virtual adepts and intercept their communications, they begin to wonder, are they really serving the right side in the Ascension War? The VAs offer to help them defect, but is this a trap? And uh, finally, players are an elite group of New World Order agents given a vital assignment. A tradition chantry has loosed an umbrid menace on the world. These invisible spirits possess both mages and sleepers and then infiltrate places where mages gather to take primal energy. These spirits spread quickly and bring more of their kind across the gauntlet. The players must travel across North America and Europe taking reports from local technocracy agents and then acting quickly to infiltrate conventions and chantries both to oppose these Umbrud. The Umbrud are leaving something behind at the nodes they raid, and the sites are forming a pattern. Can the players decipher the pattern and stop their plan before it's too late? So if you would like to contact us, you can send in an email to magethepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can send in your questions, comments, feedback, or requests for future episodes. You can also subscribe to Mage the Podcast. At this point, you can still subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, uh, tune in. Uh, we're also on Anchor, and we encourage you to drop us a line there. Uh, we're also active uh, on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. And this episode of Mage the Podcast was executively produced by Richard Bat Brewster and Ira Grace. If you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com, which, of course, is another place where you can listen to all the episodes we have to offer. And with that, bye. Goodbye, everybody.